Next up, uh, anyone, uh, anyone watching with uh, kids in school will be aware that uh, uh, it is a, a, a time where uh, the classroom has, has moved increasingly to a virtual space. And even as schools reopen, uh, often there's a mix now of uh, in-person and virtual education. But that has come with it uh, a desire to exercise um, the sort of monitoring over the uh, virtual classroom space. Um, that uh, teachers and administrators have become accustomed, uh, accustomed to in a physical school building. Uh, and that has very real con consequences for uh, the privacy of both children and their families when uh, the medium on which education is happening is situated in uh, the family living room. And a whole plethora of uh, software firms have emerged uh, to develop it effectively, you know, spyware for educational purposes, um, with uh, often without really very clear awareness on the part of, uh, of parents, and often to, to the substantial frustration of students when they are aware of it. Um, really doing some uh, absolutely vital research on this topic has been uh, Elizabeth Laird, who's the uh, director of uh, civic equity and technology at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Um, She's been uh, issued a number of, of really pretty pivotal uh, reports on this topic for CDT. Uh, and I'd like to invite Liz up to uh, talk about school-issued devices and student activity monitoring. Great. Uh, thank you, Julian. Um, and thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting today's um, important conversation. Because this is a lightning talk, I am going to spare you from the long history of CDT and my own personal background and share something that I think is even more important and relevant to today's conversation, which is that this marks uh, the first time that I have given an in-person presentation since the pandemic. Uh, so in addition to hosting today's conversation, I also want to thank Julian and Cato for giving me an opportunity to present standing up uh, and not a foot from my laptop staring at myself. Um, so I'm going to start by just setting the stage and building on um, Julian's opening uh, remarks and do something that might make me uh, a little unpopular, especially for those of you um, who do have school-aged children. But I want you to think back to um, March of 2020. I know none of us want to do that. It was a very scary time. Um, but think about um, uh, students and how overnight, literally, they were going to school in person, and then it changed, and they were staying home. And uh, schools have been working for a long time on doing something that's called closing the homework gap, uh, which is a sort of a jargony term that means um, making sure that all students have access to high-speed internet, they have devices, and they have the knowledge and skills to know what to do with it. Um, and so when the classroom shifted from the school building to the home, all of that work sort of went out the window. Um, and so think back to some of the articles that we saw that were just heartbreaking of students working on um, their laptops in fast food parking lots because that was the only place that they could get access to Wi-Fi. It wasn't even fast, but it was something. Um, and so what schools were faced with at the time was not just delivering you know, high quality instruction and closing the achievement gap, but literally just knowing where students are, being able to stay connected to them, uh, making sure that students maintain that relationship with the caring adult who was in their life in the form of their teachers. Um, 
And so I'm going to lean in hard today on the surveillance piece, given the topic and given the trade-offs. But I do want us to appreciate the work that schools have done in terms of trying to close the homework gap, making sure that students um, stay connected, that they continue to receive an, ed an education, and um, just share some data with you. Uh, and so at the time, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, we did some surveying of um, teachers, parents, and students. And uh, this is where if we were in person, I would ask you to guess what you think those numbers have changed to because we're not, um, I'm gonna do a spoiler alert. Uh, Pre-pandemic, 43% of teachers said that their schools provided devices to students. Um, does anybody have a guess of what it is now? I think it's really high, 80%, 85%. Uh, it's actually 95%. So almost every school in this country um, is giving out devices to students. And so what we were interested in is um, we're very much in, in favor of and understand the urgency, and I hope you hear that from me, that these are not easy questions, but making sure that as students were being brought online and as they were having um, devices given to them, that there uh, wasn't an unintended consequence on their privacy or um, that sort of connection, uh, as Julian mentioned, of moving from the classroom into the home, um, having any unintended consequences on them. And so we set out to do some research uh, that, again, we surveyed parents, teachers, and students. We also did um, a series of interviews with school districts. And so what I'll talk about is a combination of not just quantitative data that we got from those groups, but also qualitative information that we got from talking to school districts about how they have tried to man manage this balance. Um, and specifically, we wanted to look at um, what are the implications of, of giving school-issued devices to students. And so I'll just start by saying, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, so by um, our definition, a school-issued device is a device, um, it can be a laptop, it can be a tablet, um, that is given to um, the student to use for educational purposes, which is different than a student using a personal device, which they do, um, which uh, is a device that has been um, provided to the student from someone who's not the school, likely their family. Um, and then in addition to that, we wanted to look at what's being tracked on these devices, both personal and school issued. And so I'm going to use a term called student activity monitoring software. Um, and there are certainly um, a number of companies that offer this. Um, but for purposes of today, what you need to know is that um, these products can take the form of sort of standalone software that school districts choose to procure and install on school issued devices. And their sole purpose is to track what students are doing. And that means um, knowing what they're logging into, being able to scan their messages. Um, and sometimes it means being able to see in real time uh, what's happening on their devices. And there's also tracking that's happening within larger educational products that may have already been installed um, on devices and that students were using before, but they can still um, track what they're doing. Um, and so what matters for today is that we took an inclusive view at this. We don't really care, is it you know, standalone software? Is it happening as part of a learning management system? What we care about is um, what is being tracked. So with that, uh, I am going to talk about what we found. So um, I'm going to talk about four key findings that we came across in, in our research. Um, and again, this is a combination of quantitative uh, research that we did with teachers, parents, and students and qualitative interviews that we did with a series of school districts. Um, so the first thing that we found um, is that uh, the kind of monitoring that I'm talking about is, is quite widespread. Um, and much like I just tried to, to do to a mostly empty room, uh, when I talked to my peers uh, before we released the findings, I would ask them, you know, how common do you think this is? And they say, oh, I think it's really common. I think it's happening in about half of schools. 
And what we found is that 81% of teachers report that their school is using this kind of monitoring software. So even for someone who thinks about this all the time, this was still higher than I think we anticipated to see. And even among um, my peers who we think about all of the ways that technology might be um, misused. Uh, and not only is it, is it quite widespread, it is happening all the time. Uh, so in our research, we asked teachers, uh, when is it happening? And only one in four teachers said that this is limited to school hours. So what we're talking about is this is being very widespread. It is not limited to the school day. That is a big shift from what was happening before uh, to what has happened as a result of the pandemic. Um, and in addition to that, as I said, we set out on this research not to you know, raise alarm bells for uh, you know, advocacy sake, but we really cared about making sure that these efforts to bring students online, which are critically important, um, are not having unattended consequences. And then spe specifically, we wanted to know, does this have a, dis a disproportionate and negative effect on any particular group of students? And what we found to the answer, uh, to, the, uh, to answer that question is yes. So there's a quote here, which I will not read to you, um, about a district administrator and just the value that um, school districts place on, you know, students are wearing privacy if they're using their personal devices and not if they're using school-issued devices. Um, and they're very clear. They say you should have no expectation of privacy when you're using a school-issued device. They are not at all clear about what that means and that you could be monitored at all hours of the day, seven days a week. Um, and then we saw this divide play out in uh, what teachers said um, in terms of which kinds of devices are monitored. So 71% of teachers reported that this device or this monitoring is happening on school-issued devices as compared to only 16% who report that it's happening on personal devices. Well, why does that matter and how does that then translate to a disproportionate effect on certain groups of students? Well, that's because uh, students who um, attend schools in wealthier school districts are more likely to have access to personal devices, which means that they can essentially opt out of this kind of tracking, whereas students who are attending schools in lower income school districts do not have that as an option. So you have um, groups of students who um, uh, you know, are already you know, uh, at a disadvantage as compared to their peers, now being su uh, subjected to this kind of 24-7 surveillance that they do not have the luxury to opt out of. Um, and then if you uh, want to know who those students are, um, some of the groups are listed here. All of these uh, groups of students are statistically more likely to have to rely on school-issued devices. Um, so I already mentioned low-income students, but it includes rural students, it includes Hispanic students, it includes African-American students. And so these groups of students um, are, are more reliant on these devices and therefore subject to that um, more extensive, always-on type of surveillance that I talked about. What does this matter, right? So, you know, and not, not that anybody in this room would say this, but there's this view of, you know, nothing's private anymore, I have nothing to hide, you know, why do, why do I care? Um, one of the things that we wanted to know is um, what kind of negative effect might this have on students um, if they know that they are being surveilled and if they know it's happening all the time. Um, and we found that 80% uh, of students report that they are more careful about what they search online when they know what they're doing is being monitored. Um, and so think about a student who, you know, maybe is having some kind of 
uh, mental health uh, issue and wants to access resources on therapy. That is the kind of thing that these tools are searching for. So you may actually prevent uh, a student from accessing the kind of critical resources that they need in a timely way. But let's say you know we think the well this is actually working as it's intended to. You know we really don't want students to be able to access you know certain kinds of material. So it's a good thing if they're sort of monitoring and policing what they're accessing. Okay, I don't so agree with that, but okay. Uh, but we also found that six in ten students agree with the statement. I do not share my true thoughts or ideas because I know what I do online is being monitored. So think about what this means in an educational setting. This is the place you know where we are trying to create a safe space for students. To, to learn, um, to express themselves, to make mistakes. Like if it's gonna happen anywhere, it should be in an educational setting. And what is so disturbing about this finding is I think it actually questions whether this kind of surveillance is counterproductive and actually undermining the mission of our education system. If students do not feel comfortable sharing their true thoughts and feelings, um, they know they're being watched, well, where and when do they do it? When do they get to have those conversations and learn? Um, and so I think, you know, this was something that really stood out to us as being concerning, um, you know, in general, but in, in particular in an educational setting where you want students to be able to freely express themselves. What we found is that this monitoring does have a chilling effect um, on what they will say and when. Uh, and finally, this is my last slide, although I do have some other points, um, given it as a flash talk. Um, you know, we wanted to know, well, what do people think about this? Are they worried about some of these concerns? And um, among... Uh, teachers, parents, and students, um, they do see value in them. Um, there's a perception among school districts, which I'll talk about in a second, that this kind of monitoring is legally required. Um, and then the other reason that we're seeing this kind of monitoring happening is in the name of student safety. So to use the mental health example, um, they want to know, schools want to know if someone uh, is, is contemplating harming themselves or someone else. Uh, they want to know if they are accessing age-inappropriate materials. They want to know if they are um, you know, abusing substances. Um, so that is, those are the two main drivers we found in um, why schools are, are using this kind of activity monitoring software. Um, but it's not without a cost. Um, and so that's what I'm going to really focus on now. Um, and I'm going to highlight a couple of things that um, uh, teachers and parents are most concerned about. The first one is that um, this kind of information could bring long-term harm to students if it's used to discipline them or is shared in a way that is out of context. Um, and so when you think about the students who are being more, uh, subject to more surveillance than their peers, these are students who are already dispro uh, disproportionately disciplined as compared to their peers. Um, and this isn't here, but we asked, um, we asked school districts, or excuse me, we asked teachers how are, this, how are these tools being used? And about half said, we are using it for discipline purposes. And so you have you know, a certain group of students who are being disciplined using this kind of technology that their peers are not. Um, and so this is not just a hypothetical concern. This is, is happening now. Um, and then the other one that we wanted to know about was were there concerns about this kind of uh, monitoring? And, and because some of the, the terms that are, are used are about um, you know, sexual content, uh, does this have the potential to out students? And about half of students and parents said, yes, this is something that we would be concerned about. And since then, there has been more media coverage about these algorithms explicitly looking for terms like gay and lesbian because those students who um, are members of the LGBTQ community are, are more likely to um, commit an act of self-harm. But without the recognition that actually outing them <laughs> against their will contributes to that problem. It doesn't alleviate it. Um, so... Uh, 
you know, I guess I would you know, sort of close this sort of research part by saying uh, we did find that um, there, there is a perceived value in these things, but that some of the concerns that I'm talking about in terms of the chilling effect, in terms of it being used to discipline students, in terms of being uh, used to out certain students, um, those are not being adequately addressed. Um, so I'll close by saying, uh, much like Julie, what can we do about it? Uh, so I'll say at the federal level, um, there is a law called the Children's Internet Protection Act, uh, which if you haven't heard about it, I uh, would encourage you to look into it. And that, uh, uh, within that law, which was passed in 2000, so think about, go back to 2000, where the internet was on a CD-ROM that you put in your, you know, huge tower of a computer, um, that uh, it talked about monitoring what students are doing. And what it meant at the time was having an adult walk around a computer lab and look over a student's shoulder and make sure that they were on task and not accessing any, any, anything inappropriate. This kind of technology we're talking about now didn't exist. Um, but it is that law that, that school districts are citing as saying, hey, we have to do that because it's also tied to our E-rate funding, which is used to fund um, education technology. And so we've asked the FCC um, to clarify uh, that um, while school districts may choose to do that, they're not legally required to. The FCC is not making them do that. Um, and then the second thing is at the, the state and local level, um, that's where these decisions are being made. They are deciding whether or not to use this technology. They're deci deciding how to deploy it. Um, so in addition to um, you know, clarification at the federal level, that would be helpful. Um, at the local level, there are still things that they can and should be doing. Um, the first is that they need to be more transparent that they're even using this kind of software in the first place. Our research showed that one in four parents are not sure if this is being used at all. Forget about whether they think it's a good or a bad idea. Um, the second uh, step that they can take is to minimize when this information is being collected. You know, if parents don't know that it's being used, they certainly don't know that it's being used all the time um, uh, and that, you know, it doesn't have to be used that way. You know, these tools can be configured to, you know, if you really do want to use them, you're only doing it during school hours. Um, the third one is, you know, what the education system can and should be focused on all the time, which is equity and how do we make sure that this doesn't run counter to that, which I've you know, sort of talked about already. Um, the fourth, um, which we don't have a ton of time to get into today, to today, but this data is largely being collected by vendors, um, by third parties that school districts are paying to collect this kind of information. So at a minimum, they need to make sure that they are maintaining direct control over that information and what's happening with it, which means companies cannot retain this indefinitely. It needs to be deleted on a regular basis. Um, you know, there need to, need to be use limitations on what that is. They can't just de-identify that information and then share it broadly. Um, so it's really important that school districts maintain correct, uh, direct control of this information given its sensitivity. Um, and then the final thing I'll say is school districts should be working with communities on how to make these decisions about what is collected about students and how. Um, and they're not doing that now. And if they did do it, then I think um, you know, having that kind of conversation and, and you know, sort of actively talking about what some of the trade-offs are, um, I think could go a long way um, to trying to strike the right balance between bringing students and families online and making sure this doesn't come at the expense of their privacy. So in conclusion, if you remember nothing else from what I've said, um, uh, please take away that closing the homework gap and bringing students and their families online is of critical importance. Critical importance. And it cannot come at the expense of their privacy because they have the most to gain by being brought online and they have the most to lose by this kind of uh, constant surveillance. 
So with that, I will wrap up and turn it back to Julian and again thank Cato uh, for giving me the opportunity to present on my feet.